Hello, church. If you would open to Romans uh, chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Uh, as last week, uh, we will cover a lot of ground today. And I just want to start us off in this verse as kind of a, a summary passage for what we'll look at. Romans 5, 19. This is God's word. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so as clear as that verse is, Lord, we pray we would leave with a clarity regarding the Bible, the message of the Bible. Lord, give us understanding, be our teacher. We ask you, Holy Spirit, the great teacher, capital T teacher, that you would come and teach us in such a way that we would be changed and that we would live giving you more glory with our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said um, at the beginning of the service, as Pastor Kent just said, uh, we are doing a series of Advent sermons now till Christmas, talking, uh, really building up the anticipation to the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ. And um, those Advent sermons really, uh, and the whole message of the Bible really, become utterly pointless uh, if we don't understand the reason Jesus came, uh, the problem he was coming to fix. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of Christians talking about medicine, talking about uh, Jesus as this medicine. You need the medicine, but people don't know they're sick. And, uh, and so they're easily able to push away the cure uh, if they don't know they're sick. And there's Christians that have been in church their whole lives who could tell you immediately the solution, Jesus. But they have forgotten the problem. And the solution does not seem good or relevant or necessary unless we know very thoroughly the problem. And so that's the story I want to share today. It's, the problem is, is really in the story of the whole Bible. And so I'm going to do the impossible or attempt the impossible and try to overview the whole Bible uh, in a few moments. Um, and so let me back up and start very simply. Remember, uh, Vince Lombardi did something in, uh, I think it was 1961. It was right after the Packers had lost a championship game the year before, and it was at training camp. And he gathered the team, I think 38 football players there in the locker room, and they probably thought he was going to give this intricate new game plan and uh, training regiment. And um, he did something very simple. He just held up a football and said, gentlemen, this is a football. And so I want to do today, at least start us, by just saying, church, this is a Bible. This is a Bible. This is God's communicated word to us. 66 book canon uh, written by about 40 human authors it's divided into two testaments, an old and a new. We could even say two covenants, an old covenant and a new covenant, uh, which shows that God has communicated to us through covenant. 
Uh, This is the main way that we understand his will. And even in the old covenant, the new covenant is being progressively revealed. Augustine used to say it like this, the New Testament is the Old Testament concealed and the old is the new revealed. Which shows that without the New Testament teachings of Jesus, the apostles, you can't really understand the Old Testament. Not really. Uh, that we read the Bible two, really two ways. We read it like any book, uh, front to back, like we would read any book, but we also read it back to front. And that reading back to front is because the Bible has been progressively revealed. So there's more clarity at the end than at the beginning. And so these New Testament authors talk about the Old Testament and they explain the Old Testament to us. And so we read backwards. That's actually a primary, what we call a hermeneutical method. Uh, A way that we go to interpret Scripture is reading backwards from the New Testament authors into uh, the old. Now, the reason I bring this up, and this is going to throw two words at us, uh, dispensationalism and covenant theology, okay? Not trying to uh, just throw word, uh, words at us here, but these, these things actually become very important for how we understand the whole way the Bible is laid out. Um, and, and so, uh, in the 19th century, late 19th century, dispensationalism emerged as a new way to understand the Bible, Uh, Many of you know uh, or have a Schofield reference Bible. I got my first one gifted to me uh, two years after I was a Christian. Somebody gave me, I mean, it is massive. Uh, If you're ever in my office, ask to see it. It is huge, uh, this Schofield reference Bible. And um, Carl Truman actually said that the most influential book in the 20th century was the Schofield reference Bible. Uh, This thing took the world by storm and changed a generation's way to understand the whole biblical storyline. And so dispensationalism largely came from Schofield, uh, Cyrus Schofield, explaining the Bible in seven distinct dispensations or periods of testing, which are uh, as follows. Innocence, conscience, civil government, promise, law, grace, and the kingdom period. And in these seven distinct dispensations, um, there are very, very, very sharp distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And um, that's been the popular approach to understanding the Bible for about the last hundred years. It's, it's uh, so popular that I, I've been talking through text to a man I met in a, a plane coming back from Brazil, a Mormon, and he won't listen to half of the passages I put before him because he's dispensational as a Mormon, and he won't listen to the majority of the biblical passages I put before him. Um, this is very rampant in our day, and it hadn't shown up until the, about a little over 100 years ago. Uh, before that, uh, Christians held to a different grid for which to understand the Bible, covenant. Uh, hence, covenant theology and that, that phrase, um, which does make distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but also really sees a lot of continuity and overlap between uh, the Old and the New Covenant. And so, for example, uh, here's, say, what's some Bible behind this? Well, Jesus himself in Luke 24, after the resurrection, Jesus has a little Bible study with the 
uh, disciples on a beach, which is, the topic was basically how to understand the Old Testament. And in this Bible study, it, it says this in Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That's the Old Testament scriptures, the things concerning himself. And then Jesus said this, quote, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, that's a summary of the whole Old Testament, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Scriptures, again, being the Old Testament scriptures. And so what they were realizing with Jesus on that beach that day is that the Bible isn't a Jewish book. It's a Christian book. Everything, even in the Old Testament, is pointing us and leading up to Christ. And Paul had this theology, Galatians 3, 8. He said that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. The gospel, okay, the gospel was preached to Abraham. That's in Genesis. Uh, we know that Hebrews 11 speaks of the faith of Abel, the faith of Enoch, the faith of Jacob, the faith of Sarah. And it says all these died in faith. That's a Christian faith. As much as was revealed to them at that time. So here's what I'm saying. The, the, the story is this. That the book, this book, is the story of Jesus revealed through covenant. That's what it is. And we don't get the whole entire story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but we do get every primary gospel doctrine by Genesis 3. All of them. In their seed form, are there. And that's extremely significant uh, to understand. And so I want to start in Genesis 3, and then we'll move forward uh, from there. And, and I have two points today. I want to talk about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. This is a way you can look and understand the whole entire Bible. Both of them uh, come from the Garden of Eden. Uh, and there is a mention of the first Adam, obviously. And then there is a mention of the second Adam, or we could call him the last Adam. And so let's start with the covenant of works. With Adam and his posterity, posterity meaning future generations that would come from Adam. Now let me, I, I guess I should back up and say one thing here. Um, covenant of works is a disputed term, historically. Um, there's actually a lot, of, uh, not a lot, there's, a, there's some people um, who would deny that there was a covenant with Adam. And you say, well on what basis do they deny that? Well, the word covenant isn't in Genesis 3, or 1, or 2. Um, it's not there. And so they'll say, well, the word covenant's not there, therefore, how can we say that there's a covenant made with Adam? Well, the problem is, and I don't want to give a lot of time to this, because those same people that make that argument would say that grace was in Genesis 3, and the word isn't there. They would also point to Genesis 1 and say the Trinity is shown in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, but yet the word Trinity is not only not there, it's not anywhere in the whole Bible, yet we believe in the Trinity, uh, so just because the word covenant isn't there does not mean that a covenant isn't being given to us. It would be similar. I mean, this is how communication works. So if somebody comes up to you later today and says, did you go to, or if they said, uh, what did you do this morning? And you said, well, I went to worship with God's people. And they're like, well, why didn't you go to church? 
And you're like, well, I did go to church. And they're like, well, you didn't say the word church. You're like, well, I explained what going to church is. It's worshiping on the Lord's Day with God's people. I didn't say the word, but I, right? This is how communication works. And so there are things communicated in the Bible uh, that often don't have the exact word and that need not make us stumble. Um, I, I'll point us back to as well. Uh, so the, the first uh, confessions, great confessions, uh, the first London Baptist confession talked about a covenant with Adam. Then the Westminster in uh, 1646 um, came along and mentioned the covenant of, with Adam as well. And then the London Baptist, second London Baptist confession comes back and mentions the covenant of Adam and gives some additional clarity. And the reason I bring that up is just to simply say, Christians throughout almost all of church history, minus the last hundred years of dispensationalism, believe in an Adamic covenant. This is not a, a, a historically disputed thing. Jews before the New Testament believed in this. You can find intertestamental uh, Judaism affirming a Noahic covenant. You can find the early church fathers. You can find uh, early Catholics before much of the corruption entered affirming this. You could find the Reformers and the Puritans building this out a lot. And even unto our day, people reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and going, there is a covenant made with Adam and with Adam's posterity, Adam's offspring, that, listen, and this is why this is important, in which the gospel depends. In which the gospel depends. Many of Paul's arguments about justification later in the New Testament are founded upon the covenant of works with Adam. Many of Paul's arguments regarding the imputed righteousness of Christ all over the New Testament depend on this first covenant with Adam. And so what is the first covenant? Well, uh, like all the covenants, there's two parties that are named, God and man. God initiates this covenant and he puts conditions on the relationship. He defines what the relationship will look like. And so there's a promise of reward for obedience and there's a promise of punishment for disobedience. So God sets the conditions of the covenant. Obey perfectly and you live. Disobey, you die. Which is not near as strict as it sounds. Do you realize Adam is the first man, the only man, to have a truly free will? Nobody has a free will now because of Adam's sin. But before Adam's sin, he had a truly free will. He could choose life and live eternally or death and he would die. But his will was free, completely free. We are born with sinful natures. Our will is inclined toward evil. We're not truly able to choose life unto eternal life apart from God's enabling. Adam was. He had a truly free will. Additionally, Adam was free to do whatever he wanted to do in the garden. I mean, minus one prohibition. Which I, I could sit here and think of 8,000 wrong things I could do, right? You could as well. Adam had one wrong thing that he could think of. There was only one law. Only one command, only one prohibition. And everything else was open and free. Talk about freedom. Genesis 2.16 says this. God commanded the man saying, 
You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's it. One command to obey. And listen to what John Lightfoot said. He, uh, a few hundred years ago, he said this. Look, listen to how blunt he puts this. Adam heard as much in the garden as Israel did at Sinai, but only in fewer words and without the thunder. Adam heard as much as Israel did at Sinai, only in fewer words and without the thunder. That's an early Baptist who said that. This is, it is to say, in that one command was the Ten Commandments, was 613 commandments of the Old Covenant, was the perfect standard of righteousness encapsulated in that one command. It's not a difficult theological system that God set up. This is not a high bar for morality. There's not 613 Jewish laws that he has to try to remember. One prohibition that seems somewhat arbitrary. Don't eat the fruit. And and if he would not eat the fruit, he would live eternally in fellowship with God in this kingdom that God had provided. And this is is no small thing in terms of... uh, the amount people have studied this and written about this, Michael Horton has a 400-page uh, book on this topic right here. Um, and, and these books and these people who have thought a lot about the covenant of works, they will actually begin to talk about significant passages. And let me just read a few of these. Leviticus 18.5, this comes up in the New Testament numerous times, as well as the Old Leviticus 18.5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them... He shall live by them. Live is eternally live. Romans 10, 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. Romans seven ten says, the very commandment, Paul says, that promised life to me, the commandment promised life to me, proved Death to me. And so, uh, Burkhoff and many others uh, said things like, Paul means life in the fullest sense of the word, that if you obeyed perfectly, you would live eternally. That's the promise to Adam and to his posterity after him, that if you actually could obey from birth perfectly, God's righteous standard, you would live eternally. Now, we know nobody did that. Uh, minus one, who was born without a sinful nature. But this is what's being set up for Adam. If Adam had obeyed God, he would live eternally because what? Death only comes through the tree. You don't touch the tree, you're not going to die. You're going to keep living eternally. You see the logic there. Um, It's hard to argue against that. So here's the argument, is this. Since Adam is the federal head of humanity... After some probationary period, Adam would have achieved or met the standard of righteousness and the promise of life would have been passed down to him and then through him to his offspring. 
So Adam would not have passed death to his offspring. He would have passed eternal life to his offspring because he would have met the righteous standard. But that story has never been told, has it? Because Adam failed. And that doesn't land on us near as heavy as it should because we don't really, really, really get what happened in this garden and how this was all set up. Eden was a garden temple. It was a garden temple. It was the first sanctuary where Adam communed with God in fellowship, unhindered fellowship with God. Adam was placed there, it says in Genesis 2.15, to work and to keep it. Interesting about that phrase, work and keep, the same phrase is brought up in Numbers 3.6 regarding the priest's work. The priests were to work and keep. The temple, same phrase, same Hebrew phrase as Adam in the garden. This is a priestly work Adam is to do in the garden. He is a priest in God's garden temple. Additionally, this is a kingdom because God rules over Eden and he places a kingly ruler over his kingdom. So Adam was the king of God's kingdom. And so Adam's a priest, Adam's a king. And then thirdly, Adam was a prophet. And there's two important things we need to remember about prophets is that one, or or three, God communicates with his prophets, his word, and he expects that his prophet uh, will then communicate that word to others. So Adam receives the command not to eat from the fruit of, of that tree, not Eve. God didn't tell Eve that. God told Adam that and expected Adam to be a prophet to Eve and to tell her that which he did in some measure, but when the serpent comes to her, it seems like she either hasn't been told right or she forgot and is twisting this command a little bit. But then lastly, God expects a prophet to protect and defend the word that he's revealed to them from errors, from lies that would distort the truth of his word. And so here's what we're seeing. Adam was not off faithfully working and serving in God's garden temple as a priest when Satan showed up to Eve. Adam wasn't off faithfully ruling as a king over creation when when that serpent came to assault her with lies. Adam wasn't a faithful prophet to protect her from those lies. It says in Genesis 3.6 this, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. Listen, who was with her? He's standing right there. He wasn't off busy doing God's work. He was right with her, and then he ate. And so we have to understand, Adam is not just a husband who fails to lead his wife. Adam is a failed federal head of humanity who in that moment failed as prophet, priest, and king. And so, guys, this is the source of every problem in the world. You do understand how significant this moment is. Every evil in the world, every sin, every injustice, every problem has its source and root right here. That Adam allowed the walls of God's kingdom to be breached. Adam allowed God's holy sanctuary to be defiled. He allowed heresy among God's people. If I could put it this way, he allowed heresy in the church. 
Adam allowed a dangerous, vile predator into his wife and future children's presence to knife their throat. And you go, that sounds extreme. I'm actually watering it down. It's way worse than that. It's way worse than this. The fall wasn't just something that Adam allowed that ruined him, that ruined his wife, that ruined all his future children. It was that. And it wasn't accidental. It's not like he just kind of forgot that he wasn't supposed to eat that day of that tree. This was an act of rebellion. Called by one cosmic treason. A jockeying for God's throne and supremacy. Look, here's what Adam was showing in that moment. He was showing, I'm not content to be prophet, priest, and king on earth. I must be ruling in heaven. Setting up my own system of morality. Creating my own rules and kingdom. Adam wasn't content with dominion on earth, which God actually gave him. He wanted dominion from heaven. That's, that, and people will pause, you know, maybe some of you are already in your mind just kind of going, I, I, I'm not tracking with this because how is Adam being blamed for this when Eve's the first one to eat the fruit? How, how is all the guilt falling upon Adam and not Eve and it is true that Eve ate the fruit first. And we don't, we don't just get that from Genesis. 1 Timothy 2.14 says this. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So the Bible does emphasize that Eve ate the fruit first. But why in the garden does God come for Adam? And say, Adam, where are you? When Eve ate the fruit first, but he comes for Adam. And the answer is that Adam is the federal head of humanity. Adam was set up as prophet, priest, and king over the earth, not Eve. Adam was given one command to obey for him and all who came after him. That was on him. That was his responsibility. And therefore, God comes and he doesn't just curse the man. He does curse the woman. He appropriately gives a curse to the man and the woman in the garden after the fall. And then he turns to Satan and he says in Genesis 3.15 this, directly to the serpent, this is what God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, Satan's offspring, and her offspring, the godly offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so that moment sealed the fate of Satan. That is his death warrant. Also in that moment, the first gospel is being proclaimed by God himself. And in this moment, spiritual death is coming to Adam and Eve before the physical death. They had time, in other words, to have an offspring. God was merciful to allow them to have an offspring, which begins to lead us into the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. Now, when we move out of Genesis 3 into Genesis 4, there's this, it's something of a shift, but uh, it doesn't get as encouraging as we would think. You, you immediately see that uh, Adam and Eve have a child, and you're like, okay, uh, one seems to be wicked, one seems to be righteous. 
let's put our hope in the righteous offspring. Maybe he's the one that will crush the head of the serpent. This righteous offspring, Abel, was his name. But then you read, his brother killed him. And this, and this is actually significant, the death of Abel. Um, I didn't realize this till this week studying this out. But the New Testament talks about the blood of righteous Abel being spilled on the ground, right? Remember that? It talks about his righteous blood on the ground. Well, that's not insignificant because the word Adam has a double meaning. And so the Hebrew word Adama uh, is translated in the New American Standard as ground 64 times, as land 114 times. The same word, Adama, is also translated man and mankind. So scholars trying to understand this word Adam or Adama, um, what does this really mean? And it has this root word of, of red, and then it's literally translated red ground, or you could translate it red man. And most literally, this is translated man from red ground. That's what Adam means. And so think about the ground and the connection to Adam as well. God made Adam from what? From dirt. And then told him, work the ground. And then after the curse, the curse uh, is, cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you until you return to the ground For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so now we have the second Adam, Abel, turning into red blood on the ground. Not hopeful. By the time you reach Genesis 5, we're given 1,656 years of a family genealogy from Adam to Noah. And so you have this progression from Adam to Noah. It's like our eyes are supposed to go to Noah as this possible Adamic, hopeful Savior, this offspring of the woman who would come and save humanity. And man, there's so many connections. I'm not going to get into all these because this would, this would take forever. But you could, you could go into the garden and see how the first Adam failed. And then you go to the wilderness and you see uh, both of them against the serpent and how Adam's failing against the serpent and Jesus against the serpent in the wilderness is succeeding, right? We, there's so many connections between the first and last Adam. But I want to make the, the two explicit ones that the Bible makes, um, which were to the church in Rome and to the church in Corinth. So let's start with the church in Rome. Romans 5, verse 12. If you want to turn there, we'll be there for a moment. Romans 5, verse 12. Listen to the connection. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So, death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, this is saying a lot more than just you've got a sinful nature, therefore you sin. Um, in Greek, the artist indicative means an action already completed in the past. So there's an action that is completed already in the, in the past. That's how you conjugate this, which means, well, let me point us at verse 19. I think this is very clear when you look at verse 19, Romans 5, 19. By one man's disobedience, 
Adam, by Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners. It doesn't say will be made sinners. It says were made sinners. Past tense. So we were made sinners, not the moment we committed our first sin. Okay, if you just had a baby and you're like, when do they actually start sinning? Is it like maybe two, three, like are they six months, are they already sinning? They're born into it. There isn't a point where you say they've committed their first sin and incurred guilt. This verse says, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. In the garden, in some mysterious way, Adam's sin became our sin. His guilt and condemnation that he received there, we received there. The promise of death he received there, we received there. And this is, look, I, we are Americans, most of us, in just drenched with, from the time we're born, individualism. This is very hard to hear this type stuff. Because all we think is, is the, in, in the individual. I was not in the garden. I am not guilty for what he did. Right? We think, I didn't eat the fruit. That's not on me. You know, if I'm guilty, it's for my own sin, but not for Adam's sin. He can't, his sin can't make me guilty. That's how we think, right? We, we think every person, this is what we might say, every person should have their own chance to be in the garden and make that choice. And then God would be just to punish. And here's what we need to understand. That if God allowed every human to be the first human in that garden. If God individualized humanity in that way, Jesus would have to die an individual death for every individual. Over and over 50 billion times, Jesus would have to die for every individual's sins individually. So here's how blunt we need to, we need to see this. When Adam bit the fruit, you bit the fruit. When Adam chewed the fruit, it was in your mouth. When he swallowed it and it went into his stomach, it was in yours. That's what he's saying. And we go, well, yeah, but it's just fruit. No, it's not about the fruit, it's about the rebellion. D.A. Carson said it like this, In the garden, Adam attempted to de-God God. He tried to one-up God. He tried to be his own God. What Adam did, you did. And when Adam did it, you did it. And look, here's what's at stake. So maybe some of you go, I don't know if I'm even, I don't know if I can go with you on this. Well, here's what you're going to lose if you don't. If you get rid of imputed guilt, you must get rid of imputed righteousness. If you can't be killed by someone else's sin, you can't be made alive by someone else's righteousness. And there goes the gospel. Romans 5.19, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's very bad news. But it's very good news that by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And you say, what obedience? 
his passive obedience and his active obedience. His passive obedience was his death on the cross. His active obedience was his life of righteousness that can be imputed to us, given to us, accredited to us. Guys, notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say you are righteous or become righteous by faith. It doesn't say that. It says that many are made righteous by what? One man's obedience. Now listen to what Charles Hodge said in light of this. He said, there are not two methods of attaining eternal life. One that demands perfect obedience and the other that demands faith. Hodge is trying to get us to see what actually earned eternal life for us was Christ's obedience, not our faith. Certainly not our works. Christ's works is the foundation of our faith. His works. His righteousness. Our faith is what connects us to the righteousness of Christ. It's what grabs a hold of the righteousness of Christ and brings it to us. That's what faith does. But our faith isn't what saves us. Christ is who saves us. Uh, R.C. Sproul used to say it like this. He, uh, many of you know R.C. Sproul was no, uh, he wasn't vague on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ. Uh, he, he, nobody questioned that about R.C. Sproul. And so he used to love to uh, kind of mess with people he, in a big conference or something, and he would say, uh, you were saved by works. And then everybody would be like, what? What? And he would say, Christ's works. And then he would explain, it was Christ's work in his living and in his dying and in his rising that is the source of our salvation, not our faith. Our faith grabs hold of that. Our faith lays on that. Our faith casts ourselves upon that as our only hope. So this is Paul's argument in Romans 5, 12 to 21 Threefold. First, the guilt of Adam's sin is accredited to us. We become guilty in Adam. Second, by faith, the guilt of our sin is then accredited to Christ on the cross. And he takes our punishment, dies our death. And then third, Christ's perfect obedience is then accredited to us by faith so that we become righteous with the second Adam, the last Adam's righteousness covers the guilt of of the first Adam that has cursed us. And you go, that's amazing if that's true. That's good news, right? The gospel. But guess what? It gets way better than that. It actually does get way better than this. And we can't just stop at forgiveness of sin or that you get the righteousness of Christ because Paul doesn't. And 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll end on this passage, He says in verse 22, In Adam all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Now listen to this Genesis 3.15 prophecy fulfilled in this moment. The, The crushing of the head of the serpent. Listen to how this goes. Verse 24. Then comes the end 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. Is that not abundantly clear that we have Genesis 3.15, someone will crush the head of the serpent. It's Jesus. He, He has done this work and it goes on in verse 45 and here's the effect of that work. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being and the last Adam became a life giving spirit. But it is not the spirit, uh, the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. I love it. It doesn't actually say there's a second Adam, it says a second man. It obviously is referring to Adam. But a lot of people talk about second chances, you know. A lot of people want a second chance. It's like, oh, I know I blew my first one. If I could just get a second chance. What they should be hoping for is a second Adam. A second man to represent us before God, unlike the first man. It says in verse 47, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. That's us. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. That's who we will be. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I don't know about you, I am very, very tired of this body, of this fallen world that Adam ruined and we have ruined. Is this not hopeful? That, that we have another Adam who is setting up and has already done what is necessary to set up this new world, this new Eden, this new temple kingdom for us to rule with him in. Everyone bears the image of the man of dust. We can't avoid it. We're all born into Adam's fallen state. The question is, will you be born again into the, this last Adam, the man of heaven? One of them will represent you before God. Will you be represented in the first Adam or in the last Adam? And guys, Christ obeyed the covenant of of works that Adam failed to. And this is our foundation for the gospel. Let me end with this one last argument. William Brankel, a Dutch theologian of the 17th century, said this. He who does not understand the covenant of works will misunderstand the covenant of grace. He who denies the covenant of works will also deny the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. He's saying the covenant of works is what preserves the gospel. So if you take away the covenant of works, you take away the active obedience of Jesus. You take away the active obedience of Christ. You take away the imputed righteousness of Christ. You take away the imputed righteousness of Christ. You take away justification by faith. You take away justification by faith. You have no gospel. And there is no salvation. And we are stuck in the guilt of the first Adam. Everything comes back to what Christ 
as the last Adam came to do for us. Amen, church? If this doesn't drive us to the table to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, I don't know what does. Um, this is good, good news. We're going to go to the table and, and thank the Lord for sending Christ for us. If you're baptized in a believer in Christ, please join us and take this supper. Uh, if you are not in, coming to the table and have not been baptized and believed in Christ, uh, there is in the red bulletin that you have uh, some meaningful prayers that you can pray in this time. Prepare your hearts and let me pray for us. Father, Lord, this is good news. Lord, not just the forgiveness of sins, not just righteousness given to us, but the hope of a new world and of new resurrected bodies who were like the last Adam's body, not the first Adam. And so we praise you, Jesus. All of our hope is in you. We have no hope or salvation apart from you coming down to this earth to do all that you did. Lord, deepen our confidence in it as we come to the table. Uh, we pray we could rejoice greatly in the work you did on our behalf. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.